wondering why I need to sit on a stool this morning to preach to you. I blame it all on Honduras. I want to begin by, and I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment, um, but I want to begin by just on behalf of my wife and I um, to thank the Angelic Preacher of the Crystal Lake for your support uh, for us as we have been involved in international ministries now for uh, about four and a half years. Um, after serving at Living Grace for 33 years, God said it's time for you to step back from that role and I've got some other things for you to do. And people have asked from time to time, how's retirement? And I think uh, there's no such thing as retirement in our lives, um, such as being redirected to uh, other areas of ministry. And so God has just opened up some neat opportunities, both locally acting as the area superintendent for the Great Lakes District, and then also internationally, as, as Tim shared. And um, we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it if it wasn't for the body of Christ coming alongside us and encouraging us and loving us and supporting us in what we're doing. And so thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts. I think it's only appropriate that as um, um, I'm here preaching um, to you this morning, or let me reverse that, it's only appropriate that as Pastor Jay and Becky are in Honduras, uh, that I have the opportunity to be able to preach to you this morning. Um, you have an incredible heart for missions, and we're so excited to be a part of that. And back in March of uh, this year, uh, Claudia and I were down in Honduras for two weeks, uh, helping train a group of pastors, and then also taking care of uh, missions teams that were down there. And I had the opportunity to experience the use of the um, backloader that your church um, sent down there. So there's a picture of the, uh, uh, the, yeah, the backhoe front end loader. It, it just, it was incredible. So there's the picture of it on the campus of Educational Opportunities. I also had the privilege of then seeing it used for ministry for the very first time while I was down there. And so for some of you who have been down to Honduras, how many of you have been down to Honduras and been to uh, El Ayudante? You then I recognize uh, Buffalo Mountain in the background, right? And so we were heading up the, uh, heading up the mountain uh, with following the backhoe until it got to one of the two sites where it was gonna begin to uh, be used in, for ministry. And this next shot um, gives you a little bit, uh, I don't know if we can, will it come up as a video? I don't know if it's gonna come up as a video or not, but uh, I did a, a time-lapse video of, of it clearing the area where a house was going to be built. At the other site, they cleared a road so that a school could be built. And, uh, and so God is blessing uh, the ministry here and your heart for missions, and it just was so exciting to, uh, to be a part of that. Uh, this past year, uh, these past six months have been absolutely crazy for us in terms of travel. We've been in Israel, we've been in, in Peru, we've been in Honduras, um, and we're um, going back to Honduras in, in uh, the end of Ju uh, July. And then Lord willing, the beginning or the middle of, of uh, August, uh, my wife and I are gonna be in uh, Cuba. 
And we've had the privilege of being in Cuba both in 2018 and 2019. Um, and the picture that you have here in Cuba is really one of the churches that we had a chance to, uh, to serve in, uh, in Trinidad, uh, Cuba. And we had the opportunity to, uh, to, to train and to equip a group of pastors and, and women in ministry. And, um, and we got uh, a call just a couple months, about a month, month ago, um, asking if we could come back. And so right now we are waiting for our visas to get approved so that uh, my wife and I and two other couples can go back to Cuba and while we are there, what we are going to be doing is a week-long uh, marriage enrichment leadership uh, enrichment conference for pastors and wives. One of the concerns that um, uh, the church leaders in, Peru, uh, in Cuba have right now is that there are young pastors and wives who are really discouraged and really struggling. And there's a huge movement of trying to get out of Cuba and they're just, they're just frustrated and they asked if we could come. And my wife and I have had the privilege of doing some marriage enrichment conferences uh, in Zambia, in Peru twice, and, and now in, in Cuba. And so please pray that the visas come through and that all of the details that are necessary for us to be there um, will, will come to pass. Then also, uh, we're going to be in Albania the first week in September. And, um, and so we're going to be doing another uh, a marriage enrichment conference in Albania as well. I was just in Albania the end of, Mar uh, end of May, excuse me, to help set up that conference. And we're looking forward to, um, um, to getting back there the beginning of September. A similar situation in Albania as there is in Cuba. So many young couples are leaving Albania to go to Germany, to Italy, to the United Kingdom because they are so discouraged and the conditions in Albania are so difficult. And so God is giving us an opportunity to invest in the lives of some young pastors and wives and, and to minister to them and to encourage them. And so I ask that you would be in prayer that, um, we'll, that God will just richly bless our time in Albania at the beginning of September. Um, so the, go back a little bit in terms of uh, why I'm sitting on a stool. Uh, back in 2015, I took a team down to Honduras and we were building an adobe brick kitchen. In the process of that, um, I ended up having two discs in my lower back become compressed. And uh, I was just in excruciating pain. Uh, ended up going through some therapy and whatnot. And along the way, God uh, wonderfully touched my back. And, um, and so for the last four or five years or so, maybe even more than that now, uh, it's been great. But back in February, um, started ACT UP again, and then just before I left for Albania, uh, the, the end of May, I began to get some excruciating pain in my back. And so, um, so that's why I'm sitting instead of standing. But um, we're, gonna, uh, we're just continuing to pray that, uh, that God allows us to do ministry, um, even if it means a little bit of pain in the process. So. Please keep us in prayer. Please join me as we pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being here this morning with these wonderful people and this wonderful church. I thank you, Lord, for their love for you, their love for your word, their, their love for serving you in so many different ways. 
And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would teach us and that you would equip us. Lord, we are living in a crazy world, and we are living in a time um, that is in absolute chaos. And in the midst of that, Lord, you have called us as believers in Jesus Christ to, um, to offer a message of hope. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you will help us to, um, to bring that message of hope to a world that is in desperate need of it. Lord, I pray for, for Pastor Jay and for Becky as they are in Honduras, and um, may, that just, may this just be a special week for them. Pray for Mike Nelson as he's heading back there as well. Um, Lord, I thank you for, for the impact that this church has had on, on the ministry of Eliudante. And Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. So 20 years ago, I asked my congregation at Living Grace if they would give me some ideas of some messages that they would like to hear me preach. And got all kinds of great ideas. And, and, um, and so as all kinds of uh, subjects and topics came up and then also passages of scripture that they wanted to hear me preach. As they began to share those with us, uh, I sat down with my pastoral staff and we began to go through them and we put together a series of 10 messages um, that would address some of the subjects that, uh, that the congregation was interested in hearing. And as we put those 10 together, I then gave my staff the two hardest ones and um, no, I didn't do that at all. I <laughs> I let them choose uh, which of the, of the 10 they wanted to preach and then I preached the rest. But out of that question and out of that, uh, those, those, that survey, one of the questions that came up was how do you deal with the moral chaos in our world? And that question kind of was somewhat summarized by, uh, by two other questions. One was how can I protect my children morally how can I provide a morally pure environment for them to grow up in this world? And then another question that came up was, what does 2 Timothy 3 have to tell us about what's gonna be going on in our world in the years to come? And so out of that, those questions came a series of messages and, and the message that I'm gonna share with you this morning. It's now 20 years later and in the midst of those 20 years, um, the world in which we live and the country in which we live has, um, has become even crazier, more chaotic. And the question of how do you deal with the moral chaos and confusion in our world is as relevant today as at any time in history. If we were just asking the question, why are we so morally confused? It, it really would be a pretty easy answer biblically. You just go to Romans chapter three and verse 10 that reminds us of the fact that um, uh, there's none righteous, not one. And then a few verses later, you get down to Romans chapter three and verse 23 and reminded that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that would be the, the easy biblical answer to the question, why is there so much moral chaos in our world? But really the question is, is broader than that. It's not just simply about why but what can we possibly do about it? Is there anything that we can possibly do in the midst of all of the craziness? What can we do? What can we do? And so I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter three. And I want you to 
Listen as I read to you the first five verses. The Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, it's a period of time where Paul is getting close to that point in his life when he realizes that he doesn't know how much longer he has to live. And so he is giving counsel to this young pastor. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul begins with these words, but I realize, he says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You listen to those five verses and you listen to Paul as he shares one characteristic after another of the kind of world that is coming and you think Paul must have been writing about the United States of America in the year 2022. Over the past 20, 30 years or so, there have been some powerful, significant books that have been written by evangelical authors regarding the, the moral condition of our nation. There are three books particularly who are just when you listen to the titles of the book, they speak volumes about where we are at as a nation. And Dennis McCollum wrote a book called The Death of Truth. And in that book, he confronts the fact that we are living in a society that is rejecting the whole concept of absolute truth. And then you have Josh McDowell and his powerful ministry over many years and his book, Right From Wrong. And in that book, he confronts the fact that we are a culture that is saying there's no longer any absolute morals. And then you have D.A. Carson's book, The Gagging of God, in which he deals with the whole issue of pluralism in our country and pluralism in our world and the fact that people are saying there's many ways to get to God and confronts the fa that, that lie and addresses the fact that there's only one way to get into a personal relationship with Almighty God and that is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So this morning as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to break this down into basically two parts. In the first nine verses, I want to take some time for us to look at the moral chaos of our culture. And then in verses 10 to 17, I want us to take some time to look at the believer's response to the moral chaos. As the Apostle Paul comes to these first verses in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, he's trying to prepare Timothy for that time when Paul will no longer be around. 
as I was growing up, God blessed me with some godly men in my life who had a profound influence on my life and ultimately God used to, uh, to lead me into ministry. And, and, and I think about the impact that they had in my life and, and I think about what it's gonna be like when, when they're no longer around. Um, and um, the fact of the matter is, is that um, all of us need to be having those people in our lives that are having an influence on us and, and are feeding into us. And I'm gonna talk about this more in a minute, but um, um, Paul was that, that man for Timothy. Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus, incredible challenges in pastoring that church. And as Paul's writing, it's interesting that as he talks about um, the times that are going to come where all of this chaos is gonna be reigning, he's doing so in the context of writing about the Roman Empire and the conditions in the Roman Empire and the moral corruption in the Roman Empire. And what's particularly interesting is that when there are, there are many modern historians who when they start looking at the history of America, they go back to the Roman Empire to make comparisons. In fact, as I was doing some reading, it's interesting that some of our founding fathers looked to the Roman Empire as sort of a model. The Republic of the Roman Empire is kind of a model for, uh, for what they wanted to see um, in the United States of America. And as these modern historians are writing, and looking at the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, they compare it with what is going on in America today and, and, and will oftentimes refer to us as the American Empire. And as we are here this weekend celebrating the 246th anniversary of the birth of our nation, we are mere teenagers as a nation compared to the Roman Empire that lasted some 1,200 years. However, what's scary is that as a nation, we are beginning to demonstrate some of the major issues that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. Some of you maybe have read or heard the name Edward Gibbon. He was an 18th century English historian. And his classic work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, gives some profound insight into what caused the Roman Empire to go from, from its greatness to no longer existing. And among the many issues that Edward Gibbon deals with, three that stand out were number one, the corruption of the government. The government went from being a republic that was concerned about the people to becoming imperialistic where all they were concerned about was their ruling and their power. One of the second things that um, he points out, it was just the moral depravity and, and the decadence and the degeneration of the culture. There was this insatiable appetite for pleasure and that began to just take over every aspect of, of the, the empire. And then the third was the breakdown of the nuclear family. In fact, one of the, um, one of the Roman um, 
authorities um, at the time described the culture, family culture, is people married in order to then get divorced so that, and then get divorced so that then they could marry so that they could then get divorced so that they could marry. And that was just the whole attitude was that, was um, to go from one relationship to the next and the nuclear family began to totally fall apart. Sounds a lot like our country today, doesn't it? We're going to take note at the warnings that um, Paul gives to Timothy. There are 20 different terms that Paul uses to describe the, um, the moral decadence and the moral chaos that was going to come. And I don't have time for us to begin to deal with all of those, but I want to kind of bring them uh, together in, in three categories. The first category would be the category of selfishness. As Paul writes to Timothy, he uses words like this. He said, the day is going to come when people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, ungrateful, conceited, without self-control. So there's going to be a time when there's the culture, there'll be a culture of selfishness. We are living in that time. As you, as you just look around us and as we see, we, we have become a, a narcissistic culture that demands its own way and wants what it wants and wants it, as when, it when it wants it. One of the interesting things is, is that as we have become a culture of selfishness, that natural sinful progression then leads us to not only want what we want, but then to demand what we want. And then that leads to the second category in the, cat, the category of ruthlessness. Some of the words that Paul uses as he writes to Timothy, they're revilers, they criticize and they blame. They're disobedient to parents. What's interesting to me is that as Paul talks to Timothy and says, there's gonna come a time when there's gonna be disobedience to parents, what that really is doing is characterizing a much bigger picture of just the, the rejection of any authority. That's where, that's where the rejection of authority at, at the greater levels begins. It begins when there's a rejection of authority in the home, when there's no longer respect for parents. Then all of a sudden there begins to be no respect for local leaders, no respect for teachers. And ultimately, it leads to a culture in which there is just no respect for anyone in authority. Some of the other terms that Paul uses, they're unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, brutal, treacherous, reckless. The more culture gets used to getting its own way, the more the culture gets angry when it doesn't get its own way. And when it begins to get angry because it's not getting its own way, then it will begin to lash out and do whatever it feels it needs to do to get its own way. And all we have to do is look around at um, what's been happening on the streets of our cities following the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. 
and some of the other events that have been going on to understand that we are not only a very selfish culture, but we are also becoming a very ruthless culture as well. The last category or the third category that that we have here in this passage of scripture is we move from a culture of selfishness to a culture of ruthlessness and then ultimately to a culture of godlessness. Paul uses these words as he writes to Timothy. He said the people are going to be unholy, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God a form of godliness, though they deny its power. The digression of a culture into a culture of godlessness is just a natural result of moving from selfishness to ruthlessness. There are at least three reasons why people would prefer to just come to the conclusion that there is no God, or if there is, that he has no part or say in what's going on in, in our culture. The first is that God's standards get in the way of what I want to do, right? We are living in a culture that says that this is what I want to do and I don't like what God says. I don't like what God says I need to do because it gets in the way of what I want to do. The second reason why we become a godless culture is not only because his standards get in our way, but the very existence of God means that someday I may have to stand before him and give an account of my life. So it's much easier to just discount God and say there is no God and then not have to worry about the fact that I'm going to have to sometime, at some point in the future give an account of my life. Third reason why it's so easy for a culture to just become godless is that if I deny the existence of God, then I can replace him with myself and I become God. And when I become God, then I call the shots. I decide what is right and wrong. I decide what I want to do and whether it's okay for me to do it. I decide whether it's all right for you to do what you want to do and if it affects me negatively then it's not all right you understand the process you may have recently seen a uh, Gallup poll that indicates that the percentage of Americans who do not believe in God is at the highest level that it's ever been in the 72 years that Gallup has been polling Americans In a most recent poll, the Gallup results were that 17% of Americans now indicate that they do not believe in God. And you may hear that number, 17%, and say, well, that's not a big number. But keep in mind that it is larger than at any other time in the 72 years that polls have been taken on that question. 17% 17 of Americans now indicate that they do not believe in God. But here's what's scarier to me. In the age category of 18 to 29, only 68% say that they believe in God, and that is a drop of 10% in the last five years. We 
We've got a generation growing up that's walking away from the church and is walking away from a belief in God. We are a culture that has abandoned God's existence. We have abandoned God's truth and we have abandoned God's moral standards. And what's also particularly scary is that it's not just simply about what's happening outside the walls of the church. It's about what's happening inside the walls of the church as well. Earlier in the service, passage of scripture from 2 Timothy chapter four was read. I want you to listen to verses three and four again. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And one of the things that we're seeing today is that in in churches throughout our country, that we've got people in the pulpits who are preaching lies, who are preaching false who are, are preaching false doctrine, who are, who are saying that the Bible cannot be totally trustworthy. And the people in the pews are buying into that. They don't want to hear messages that are going to bring them under conviction because they are living lives that are disobedient to God. They want to hear that they're really good people and that they just need to, to just continue to go out and, and love your neighbor and everything will be fine. Barna Research recently posted this result of a poll. 80% of American adults are concerned about our nation's moral condition. That's good, right? At least we've got 80% of our, of our nation, people that say things aren't right, we don't like the way they are. But here's the scary thing. What's the solution? Well, 57% of American adults say that the way to know right and wrong is by your own personal experience. Isn't that scary? We don't like the way we are going, where we're headed in terms of the moral condition of our nation, but 57% of the people will say, yeah, but we can work it out with just by our own personal experience. It gets even scarier when we talk about the age range of 22 to 40. 74% in that age range believe that right and wrong is a matter of personal experience. Cultural Research Center is another polling firm out of Arizona. And they basically confirmed the statistics that I just read to you from Barna. 58% of Americans no longer look to God or the Bible for truth and morality. 58%. This is also scary. The study found that evangelicals, and evangelicals are defined as those who believe the Bible to be true and the reliable word of God. Amazingly, 46% of evangelicals do not believe in absolute moral truth. Only 48% of those who would say that they are an evangelical believer, only 48% say that they believe in absolute moral truths. How 
how on earth can we expect that we're going to have a nation turned around in terms of the moral condition when we don't believe in anything that is a standard that we can rely on and agree on? I want you to imagine for a moment how chaotic our world would be if we had no standard measurements. The headquarters for the International Bureau of Weights and Measures can be found in the town of Serrat, just outside of Paris. And it has, it's the standard for weights and measures. So you wanna know what an inch is? Just go over to Serrat, uh, France, and you'll have the exact measure. And, it's, and those measurements are in, in, embrace the entire world, okay? Whether you're talking about um, British measurements or metric. So imagine what would happen if people all over the world decided that they wanted to abandon those standards of measurement. Here's my suggestion. We're all concerned about the price of gas these days, right? So my suggestion is this, is that we just, we change how we measure, okay? We keep the price the same, okay? But a gallon will no longer be a gallon. It'll no longer be 128 ounces. When, when gas starts to get more expensive, we'll keep the price the same, but we'll just say that a gallon is now 126 ounces. And then a little bit later, we'll say, okay, uh, gas is getting more expensive, so we'll keep the price the same, but now you're gonna only get 122 ounces. What do you think that would do to our world? We start to get pretty angry, right? I'm not getting what I'm paying for. Well, yeah, you are. We just changed the standard, the change the measurement, right? See, the fact of the matter is that we've become a culture that is redefining everything in the dictionary. So why not redefine what a gallon is? Why not redefine what a, what a liter is? What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal. Absolutely, it's a big deal. And it's a big deal when we start redefining morality redefining what is right and wrong. How many carpenters do we have here? Couple, okay. This, is not, uh, this does not cast any aspersions on you, okay? But the building industry has been doing this for a long, long time, right? So what is the measurement of a two by four? Right? It's three and a half inches by one and a half inches, right? But we are living in a culture that, if you want, that's in chaos because we are redefining truth. We are redefining morality. So what's our response as believers? In the last half of chapter three of Second Timothy, Paul then now shares with Timothy what Timothy's response should be, what the believer's response should be to the moral chaos. One of the tendencies for us as believers could be to just get really angry. And there is a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of rage. And there are a lot of Christians who are very angry. But that's not solving anything. 
Another option is um, to just isolate, to hunker down and to withdraw and, and, and just to get into a, a communal environment where you just avoid all of it. And that's not solving anything either. So how are we as believers to respond? I'll share with you three things. The first is this, that we need to be about the business of mentoring for living. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul commends Timothy with these words, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. And what Paul is doing is he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have allowed me to mentor you and you have followed all that I have invested in you. And people, I want you to understand how important this list is. And I don't have time to go through the entire list. But if, if for you as parents who have young kids, do you, want, do you want a list of what you need to be doing in terms of investing in your kids, mentoring your children to live lives that are honoring to the Lord as they grow up? You've got, you've got a list of eight right there. Teaching, what I say, conduct, how I live. Aim, my purpose in living. Faith, what I believe, who I believe in. Patience, how I can, long can I wait. Love, how do I treat others? Steadfastness, how consistent am I? Suffering, what am I willing to endure my, for my faith? Eight, powerful things that we can be investing into our lives of our kids, into the lives of people that God brings into our lives where we have an opportunity to mentor them. The question we need to be asking ourselves is who am I mentoring and who is mentoring me? The Apostle Paul commends Timothy for having followed Paul's mentoring. The second thing that Paul says is this, not only do we need to be mentoring for living, but we also need to be preparing for suffering. In verses 12 and 13, Paul goes on to say this to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. One of the sad things is there was a time in the history of our country when Christians were admired and looked up to they were seen as a great value to community. And that's not to say that that doesn't exist today, but you're hearing more and more from our, our media and politicians and, and others in, in places of authority that are condemning the church and saying we need to get rid of the church and we need to get rid of God. And, and there's this huge movement to, to trash the church But as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be prepared for suffering. And being prepared for suffering means how do we then deal with those who are lashing out at us? Do we get angry with them? 
Do we say things to them that are demeaning? And, or is there another way? In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is writing to the uh, churches in northern Turkey who are going through tremendous times of suffering. And, and in verse 15 of, of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Peter says this, Be always ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you when you are asked, but do so with gentleness and respect. We need to be thinking about how can I give a defense to those who are asking, to those who maybe are questioning or even wanting to debate me, how can I give a response of the hope that is within me in a way that will be gentle and respectful? We need to be mentoring people for living. We need to be preparing people for suffering. The third thing that Paul says is that we need to be invested in the scriptures. I'm excited for the series that Pastor Jay is gonna be doing over these next several weeks. And I would encourage you, you need to hear every one of those. And if you happen to be gone, listen to it later on. They're powerful questions. It's gonna be a powerful series. The basis for what Pastor Jay is going to be teaching is going to be his is going to be God's word. We need to be invested in the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy in verse 14 of chapter 3, you must continue in the things that you have learned. The word continues in the present active imperative. In other words, what Paul was doing was he was commanding Timothy, Timothy, you must, you will continue in what you have learned. The scriptures call us to be a living example of the truth. In verse 15 of chapter three, Paul goes on, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. The scriptures were given to us in order to lead us to an understanding of who God is and why Jesus Christ had to come to this earth and give his life for us and that it's the scriptures that then lead us to an understanding of how we can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and have a salvation experience. And then in verses 16 and 17 of of chapter three, we read these words. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The only way that we are going to be equipped to deal with the culture that we are living in and to be used by God is if we are continually in the word of God and letting it do a work of transformation in our lives day after day after day so that we can then share that with others. As I bring our time to a close, I ask these four questions of us, all of us. Number one, am I convinced of God's truth? Am I convinced of God's truth? Number two, am I devoted to living out God's truth? Number three, am I passionate about mentoring others with God's truth? And then number four, am I committed 
to never redefining God's truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we readily admit that we are living in a time of absolute moral chaos. We are living in a time where nobody wants to hear your truth. We are living in a time, Lord, when people want to do what is right in their own eyes and it is destroying us. Lord, I pray that as believers in Jesus Christ, as your children, that we would see how you can use us to bring our nation back to a right understanding of who you are and how important the truth of your word is. And Lord, that's gonna happen one person at a time. Lord, I pray that you would use us, Lord, to stem the, the moral chaos and to re- redirect us towards a right relationship with you. In Christ I pray.